0: Well, good morning, church, to those that are joining us online uh, and those that are joining us in Wills Point this morning. I'd like to say welcome. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're there, wherever you're at, spending some time with us this morning. Uh, And it's always a joy to share in God's Word uh, with you all. So if you have your Bibles, um, you can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. And I want to begin this morning by talking about differences. Now, you and I are different, correct? For many of you that know me, you're probably emphatically shaking your head. Yes, you and I are, in fact, different in many ways. Now, physiologically, we're different, but also physiologically, we do share some things that are in common. We have two pairs of eyes, arms, legs, ten toes, ears, you know, all the things physiologically that make up our body. But then at the same time, our bodies all look different, We vary in height, in size, when it comes to personalities, there's different temperaments and different um, personalities that we all have, there's difference in uh, a sense of humor that we all have in many ways, but we all have differences that exist between us. But outside of just the physiological differences that we have, where we come from can differ. You know, the church as a whole is made up of many different cultures. There are many people from different nations, different areas of the globe, different walks of life um, come together um, as the church, but they come from different places. We share many different family traditions. Uh, Many different families can enjoy different things uh, when it comes to, say, leisure or sports teams, depending on where they live but we differ in the clothes that we like to wear, the movies we like to watch, the music music that we like to listen to. There's a couple in my journey group. Um, they really like listening to this, uh, this French guy. I can't remember his name, and I can't begin to describe you the type of music in which he sings, but they absolutely love it. Uh, I don't fully understand it, but they love it. You know, It's just a difference that is present there. But we have different backgrounds as well. When it comes to the church, and... In the body of Christ and believers, in many ways, we all have different places that we come from. If we've been raised in church, you know, there's, there's deep-rooted traditions that can still um, influence the way we approach the way we say do church in many ways. You know, there's certain denominational things that we can bring to the table as we go here or there or move about to different churches. As we move to a different place and join a new church, we can bring along with us a mindset or an idea of what it looks like to do church that's different than the church in which we're beginning to attend. But the question is, what happens when those differences exist and we begin to get around other believers that share these differences? But for our time this morning, let's call it, for the most part, all of this, when it comes to differences, when it comes to differences specifically within the church, let's call them a matter of preference. And when it comes to these preferential matters, this is what Paul instructs the church in Romans chapter 14. Well, it begins in Romans chapter 14 and goes through chapter 15, verse 13. He covers this idea of preferential matters within the body. And he instructs the church not to pass judgment or despise one another in those differences. Because they most surely will exist. But now I do want to make clear that it's not only preferential matters that we are not to pass judgment or despise one another on. There are certain things that exist that we do pass judgment on one another for. But what Paul is talking about here in chapter 14 and following, it's not a matter of salvation. The issues that he discusses are not a matter of sin or morality. They are preferential matters. Elsewhere, Paul does instruct the church in 1 Corinthians on matters of sin where he does emphatically tell the church that we are to, or he says, it is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Or is it not, he asked the question. And the implication is that, yes, there are those inside the church that we are to judge, but it's when it's a matter of sin or morality that needs to be corrected. Remember from a couple of weeks ago in chapter 12, we're to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. We need to discern what is evil, discern what is good, and be Willing to stand firm and call out what is evil. And that is the idea that he says to the Corinthians. But in context there, it was a matter of great sin. And Paul says this. He says to purge the evil person from among you. So when it does come to matters of sin or matters of morality, sin will always separate. You and I have differences that exist between us all. From all the things we taught just recently, just said moments before. But those are matters of preference. But when it comes to matters of sinfulness, sin will always separate us. And if sin always separates, what is it then that should unify us? It's not our differences that should unify us, should, should it not be the things that we're equally for? Shouldn't it be our commonality, the things that we share in common that should draw us together? You know, in Batman versus Superman, you have, you have these, these two superheroes and they're, they're at odds, right? One just really wants to destroy the other and he goes to great lengths to, to fight Superman, which is flawed in itself. He's Superman, you want to beat him up. But nonetheless, they hate each other and they're against one another. But then all of a sudden, they discover that both of their moms are named Martha. And then it's like, Wait a minute, your mom's name is Martha? My name's my name's Martha. Did we just, just become best friends? And then they go on and they save the day unified together. So our differences become acceptable when we discover what our commonality is. In church, our commonality here and what matters most is that our commonality is and will always be Christ the Lord. And for you and I, as we approach the subject subject of judging one another, and we set aside and we don't look at things in terms of sinfulness, which we do need to judge others on, but in context this morning as we look at our text, when it's matters of preference, Paul instructs us not to judge one another, not to despise one another, not to be divided by what is different in us, but to come together on what we share and our commonality. The thing that we share is Christ. The Lord, And in Christ, we have all been set free from the same sin. Not the same sins, but the same sin that separated us from God. But in Christ, we've been set free from that. And there's a freedom that exists. So the main issue for the Roman church that Paul is addressing was that they were, in some sense, bound by their background. It's bound by where they were coming from, what their tradition was. For the Jew, they came out of Judaism. For the Gentiles, they came out of their paganism. And from both places, they had tradition and values that most likely for their entire lives, depending on when they were converted, they held. For the Jew, when it came to Judaism, there are deep, deep things within the law that they held true and held dear and held firm on for a really long time. But they come into Christianity. They have freedom in Christ. But sometimes they don't fully understand that freedom. They don't fully understand the gospel and that they're free from some of the things that they are free from. So the fundamental issues that divided them here this morning is food offered to idols and holy days on the calendar, as we'll see. But some from each, Jews and Gentiles, they understood their freedom. Yet on these issues, others would be appalled at eating food offered to idols while others would in no circumstance disregard the Sabbath. But their differences existed, but their differences began to divide one another. So Paul seeks to address it. John MacArthur says of chapter 14, he says that it is the unity of the weak and the strong. On the one hand, there are those who know that they are free. They know they have freedom in Christ. They know they're free from sin, from death, from old religion, tradition, from ceremony, from ritual. Those things are external and don't matter to what has taken place internally for them. They understand without an inkling of doubt what John says in eight thirty-six of his gospel. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. These are the strong who understand the freedom that they have in Christ. But now on the other hand, there are those that are still grasping to what once held them down. They've come to Christ and they've accepted his salvation and who he is and his lordship over their life, but they're still holding on to things in their past, things that would hold them down. And it's not sin, but it's their tradition and it's their preferences that they're holding on to. And those things do not promote freedom and liberty, but they promote immo- immovability and legalism. And for a time this morning, these are the weak But there's a unity that can exist between the strong and the weak. And what happens is this. When those things exist, the one that looks down on the other and their weakness despises them for their attempting to rob them of their liberty. That's the strong. They would despise the weak because the weak seeks to have them not live in their liberty and their freedom. They would call the things that they do sin. But on the other side, The weak would look up with contempt and condemnation for what they see as sinful liberty. And it puts them against one another. So now to our text in Romans 14 verse 1. The fundamental issue. With that in mind, understanding differences exist. Here's what Paul begins to say about it. He says that as for the one who is weak in the faith or weak in faith... He says, "Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions." Now note here who Paul is talking to. Paul is speaking to the strong. He says here, he says, "For the one, he says, "As for the one who is weak in faith, he says, "Welcome him." So he's saying to the strong, you are to welcome the one who is weak in faith." So the weak seem to be the minority within the, within the body that, that Paul is writing to. And he says, welcome him. It means to receive him, is what the word means. To take as one com- one's companion, to take in friendship, is what he's saying. Recall uh, chapter 12, verse 9. Paul says, let love be genuine. Let it be without hypocrisy. This is your brother here, and you should welcome him. You should receive him as a friend in his weakness, but not to quarrel over opinions. He's saying, don't argue over what the NIV translates disputable matters because every one of us have an opinion, right? But what Paul is beginning to say here to the strong, he's saying, you are to welcome and accept the weak for who they are, but do not accept them or welcome them in in an attempt to argue with them over opinions because everybody has an opinion. And again, as we said before, they most likely differ. But he says to welcome them. Now Paul describes the issue in verse 2. He says, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So the strong person believes, they understand their freedom, and they can eat anything, but the weak person eats only vegetables. So here's the context. Under, under, a Jew under the law could not eat anything unclean at all, meat or otherwise. But food offered to idols became unclean, or it was no longer kosher for a Jew to eat, according to the law. So what would happen in this case was the Gentiles would take, and in similar fashion, they would sacrifice food to their god, their gods, or little g-gods, or idols. And then similar to what was left over in Jewish tradition would go to the priests so that they could partake of it and, and, and eat and be fed, Uh, what was left of the Gentile sacrifice, what was done was it was taken out the back and then it was sold in the marketplace. So to the Gentile Christian, knowing this, they would abstain from eating meat sold in the marketplace and they would eat only vegetables because they didn't want to eat anything that was offered to idols. So not that they were weak in the faith and and that they lacked faith in the Lord, but they were weak in their understanding of the gospel and the freedom that they had, and they understood at one time in their paganism that these idols or these offerings and sacrifices to these idols would go out the back door, would end up in the marketplace, and they knew that in the marketplace they might buy food that was actually sacrificed to an idol, and to partake of that would defile them. In the same way that the Jew absolutely would not, under the law, eat anything sacrificed to an idol. But to the strong, Paul says, strong believes he can eat anything because he has that understanding of freedom. So here you have faith that allows a person to eat anything is a faith based on a proper understanding of the gospel. And such faith is strong and it frees the conscience from doubt and hesitation. Faith that allows a person to eat only vegetables is a faith based on an inadequate understanding of the gospel. And such faith is weak and it leaves the conscience bound to doubt and hesitation, is the idea. Now, verse 3 is Paul's ruling on this matter. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. He says, God has welcomed him. It's the same word in verse 1. God has accepted him. Now note here in verse 1, Paul is speaking to the strong and he's telling the strong that you are to welcome the weak but not to quarrel over opinions, but you're to welcome him. Do not look on him with contempt. And the weak should not condemn the strong. Right? But here it says to the weak that God has welcomed the strong. So see how he covers both ends of it. He begins with the strong. You are to welcome the weak. Here he says, let no one who eats despise the one who abstains, but let the one who abstains not pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Weak person, God has welcomed the strong in the same way that I've told the strong to welcome you and accept you where you're at and who you are and he accepted them both God did without either of them having to keep food laws Colin Cruz says this he says acceptance of one believer by another is mandatory in light of the fact that God himself has accepted them both and it's a point that Paul reiterates later in chapter 15 when he says accept one another then just as Christ accepted you You see the lens with which we need to be viewing one another is understanding that differences do exist, but we need to view one another with the understanding that God has accepted each and every one of us. God has accepted us exactly as we are, where we're at in our current situation, where we're at in our understanding of the gospel, where we're at in our understanding of freedom. God has accepted us And in that way, if we view one another through his eyes, we should be accepting and welcoming one another. And then Paul goes on in verse 4. He says, now who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Now he's speaking to the weak here. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So he's still addressing the weak and Paul says that you are not to pass judgment on God's servant. It's oiketes. It's a household servant is the word for servant there. And then master is kurios. Kurios means it is he to whom a person or thing belongs about which he has power over. So simply put, what he's telling the weak person here is he's telling them that there is a master who has a servant and who are you to judge That master's servant. It is for the master to judge his servant because the servant belongs to him and works underneath him. He doesn't work underneath you, he works underneath his master. A modern illustration of this would be an employee and employer. Paul's admonishment is Who are you to evaluate the performance of someone else's employee? They don't work for you, they work for their employer. In this case, what he's saying is, is the strong, they are the servant of God and they're working for God. Who are you to pass judgment on that person? But it is before his own master that he stands or falls. The word stands is stakeo or stako. It is approved. It is being in right standing is the idea. So it's person that, that, that it's, a, it's before his own master that he stands approved. It's the idea that his master looks at his servant and he sees him as one that is in right standing before him. So it doesn't matter what anyone else says about that particular servant because the master views that servant as one that is approved and that's the only opinion that should matter to that servant is the one of his master because that's the one that he serves. But it's before him that he stands or falls. To fall is just the opposite of standing and right standing. But in that, even if he does fall, the master will be the judge of that, not anyone else. And the Lord is able to make him stand. He will be upheld. It's the same word for upheld and stand, his standing. It's to cause a person or thing to keep its place. The master sees his servant as being in good standing before him. And he upholds him. He keeps him in that place for his service. He's the one that ensures, that judges that servant, but he's the one that ensures that he stays standing in the right place because he is his master. No one else is. It's no one else's responsibility to ensure that person's standing. So for the weak to look at the strong and pass judgment because they believe that they're being too liberal in their freedom and they're they're doing things that are sinful in their freedom... He's saying, do not pass judgment on that because they stand firm and they stand right before their master. And it's not for you to do that. Whether they stand or they fall, it is to the master's judgment. In verse 5, he introduces the issue of of sacred days. And he gives a bit more of a positive response to the differences that exist there. Verse 5, he says, one person esteems one day as better than another. While another esteems all days alike. Now, the idea, what seems most likely to be in view here, is the Sabbath day. Is that some that would come from Judaism, they would would still hold to the Sabbath in the Sabbath laws. If it's the Sabbath day, I'm not doing any work. I'm not carrying anything. I'm not doing anything. I'm sitting at home not doing anything. But now, someone, the strong, understanding their freedom in Christ on the Sabbath, they go and they do things. The weak would look at them, pass judgment. You're sinning. You're not keeping the Sabbath is the idea. But even for the Gentile that's coming out of paganism, they had days set aside for certain things. So the same idea could apply, but it seems most likely what's in view is the Sabbath. But then Paul says, he says, each one should be fully commenced in his own mind. So he says, one person does esteem one day is better than another, while the other esteems all days alike. So the weak would esteem one day is better. the one that would esteem all days alike seems to be the strong. But he says each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And what Paul means there, he's encouraging people to hold to their own convictions and act accordingly. be fully convinced in your own mind. And again, only in preferential matters does this apply? Not matters of salvation, sin morality. We shouldn't be fully convinced in our own mind that doing this sin is okay. If it goes against God's word and God's word clearly says that that is sin, then no, it's, don't be, we should not be fully convinced in our own mind that it's okay to do that thing. And if we are fully convinced in our own mind that it's okay to do that thing, I pray that there are brothers and sisters around us that would judge us accordingly to that sin in God's word and call that out in our lives. But in the sense here... Only in preferential matters. Paul says we should be fully convinced in our own mind that this is, this is what's true, this is what's right, and act and move about our days according to that. Not half step in it, but full step in it, if that's what we believe is right and believe we should do on matters of preference. In verse 6, Paul says, uh, The one who observes the day, he said he, he, he observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So do you see what's happening here? What he begins to lay out? In every sense, whether you eat or you don't eat, whether you honor one day or esteem one day or all days alike, if you're doing it unto the Lord, to honor the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord, again, we should be fully convinced in our own mind and both, the strong and the weak, are reminded that whatever they observe, a day or no day, to eat or abstain, both are an expression of their devotion to the Lord. Again, church, if it's, if it's not a matter of sinfulness, if it is an expression of someone's devotion to the Lord, who are you and I to point that out and judge others for doing such a thing? But the reason we do it is because we reach back to our own tradition. We reach back to our own preference and we seek to throw that on another believer. And say, no, this is the way you're supposed to do that thing. This is the way you're supposed to worship. This is the way you're supposed to dress. You can't wear that in here. This is the house of God. No, that's a misunderstanding of scripture. This is a building. We are the church. We are the house of God. We are the temple of God's Spirit. Now, it does matter how we take care of that temple. But if my preference of clothes differs from from yours, and the external view of me is different than you as it pertains to worship, who are you and I to judge on such a thing? He said, each should be fully convinced in his own mind. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says to the church there, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Church, that forms the bedrock of what that means, to be fully convinced in our minds that whatever we do, eat or drink, esteem one day over the other, keep the Sabbath or not, whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. In verse 7 he says, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, he draws a conclusion, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Now if you have your Bibles, mark that phrase there. Circle highlights, so then, distinguishable from the next, so then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. In life we are the Lord's, therefore in that what we do in life is for the Lord to judge. If he's our master, we are his servant. What we do in this life is for him to judge. We do not live to man, we live to the Lord. Now in death, he says here, we are the Lord's, therefore our fellowship with the Lord remains. Regardless of anything else, what anyone else thinks about us, we have fellowship with the Lord in life, we have fellowship with the Lord in death We are the Lord's. Then verse 9, for to this end, Christ died and lived again. Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. So church, since Christ is Lord over all, the dead and the living, then clearly eating or not eating, keeping a day or not, come under his direction. If he is Lord of it all, When it comes to matters of preference, it comes under his authority to rule, to judge on such things, not you and I, if we all belong to him. And if we view, again, view one another through that lens, understanding that we're all accepted and all welcome by Christ, by the Lord, we live and we die to him, we are his, then he is the ultimate judge in all matters. Yes, and that does even include our sinfulness, but as far as the way we are to judge one another or not judge one another, Paul's here, we leave it to the Lord to do so. So, verse 10, Paul says, why do you, why do you pass judgment on your brother, your brother or sister? Or why do you despise your brother? Now, this is the first time in, since chapter 12 Paul mentions the word brother, and it is emphatic as he mentions this. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? It's an important concept as we begin to wrap up this morning. John Calvin says this, If the Lord has ordained among us a society of brothers, equality must be observed. Anyone, therefore, who assumes the part of a judge is behaving insolently. So the seriousness of this error is exemplified with Paul saying this on the latter half of verse 10. He says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. He says, for we will all, every one of us, will stand before the judgment seat of God. Stand is peristemi. It's not being right standing necessarily. It's saying we will stand before God. We will stand before God as our judge. We will stand before him and give an accounting of ourselves to him. We will give a report to him for what we have done. The strong and the weak. The weak is not going to stand before God and give an account of you based on your preferences. That's not how that's going to work. Each of us is going to stand before the judgment seat of God. In verse 12, so then, again, Paul drawing a logical conclusion. Paul says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. If all of us will stand before the judgment seat of God and each of us will give an account, it becomes soberingly personal. Church, you and I shouldn't shouldn't have time with this in view, looking for ways to judge or despise one another in their strength in faith or their weakness in faith in any way. If we understand this truth here that we will all stand before the judge and we want to give an account for ourselves, it is soberingly personal, our walk with the Lord and what we do and what we've been fully convinced of in our mind as it pertains to preferential matters. So one caveat here as we seek to, as we close, yeah, seek to close. Um, this could go on for another 15 minutes, guys, who knows? But uh, one caveat, yes, as we close. Um, should not the strong serve the weak? Here's, here's an idea here, okay? Should not the, song, the strong serve the weak by educating them to the freedom that they actually possess? It's kind of the idea. Should not the strong in faith, the more mature Christian, come alongside that weak Christian and seek to teach them all the ways that they have this freedom. Bring delight for them all the ways that they're not acting in that freedom. Wouldn't that be serving the weaker brother in some way? But who would that really be serving? See, it becomes to be a matter of the heart and a matter of, not preference in this point, but a matter of motivation. Is Who would that really be serving? Would it be serving the weak so that they would experience the full freedom in Christ? But according to what Paul says, they do because they've been welcomed and accepted fully by Christ. They stand or fall based on his judgment, not anyone else's. So who is it really serving? But oftentimes from that lens, if the strong, mature Christian looks at the weak and decides, hey, I'm going I'm to come alongside this brother or this sister and I'm going to show them where their freedom is, is that to serve them or is that to serve ourselves? Is that to let them know the freedom that they have so that now all of a sudden I'm free to do the things I know I have freedom in in front of them without incurring their judgment? Let me process through that for a minute as we think of motivation of the heart. Because the reality is Paul is addressing the strong in faith and he's addressing the weak in faith. But may we give care to one another. But each should be fully convinced in his own mind. And it all comes down to a matter of conscience. Now track with me here some have knowledge and a full understanding of the gospel. Yes, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 7 Paul says to the church there, he says, "However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol." And he says, "And their conscience being weak is defiled." Now, to the strong, he says, in Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 8, he says, Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So we need to really think through what we're doing, when we're doing it, and who we're doing it and from it, and understanding who our brothers and sisters are and where they're at. Again to the strong in, verse, in chapter 10, verse 25, again to the Corinthians, he says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Verse 29, I do not mean your conscience, but his. So church, if necessary, who are going to be the ones that, that give preference? Who should be the ones in this that do show honor to one another? John MacArthur notes, it's, going, it's got to be the strong who are willing to sacrifice their liberties. Why? Why has it got to be the strong that has to sacrifice their liberties? It's the strong because of their strength. Right? I mean, just logically speaking, for the strong, the grown-up, the mature believer, it's got to be, it should be the one that's willing to give up their preference for another. So if you find yourself to be unable or unwilling to do this, you may not be among the strong or you may have a false sense of how strong you actually are. If there's an unwillingness on our part to let go of our preferences and our liberties, the things that we know we have freedom to do, so that we don't become a stumbling block to our weaker brothers, we might find ourselves to actually be the ones that are weak. So for us today, it is It is not so much about eating food offered to idols. It very well could surround the Sabbath in many ways. But it could be song selection worship. It could be Bible translation. It could go from instrumentation and music to the clothes that we wear in service. There are a myriad of preferences. It can go down to colors of chairs, colors of carpet. Foolishly enough. But may we not be divided on preference, but be unified in the Lord. May we recognize and know what our commonality is in all senses. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that is welcomed, that has accepted you and I. Exactly as we are in the midst of our preferences, fully understanding our preferences and our weakness. Second Corinthians 3.18 Paul tells the church there, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. You and I, each of us, have been fully accepted and fully welcomed by the Lord. We are the Lord's. We live to the Lord. We die to the Lord. We belong to the Lord." And we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. And if we would recognize about ourselves and not despise one another or pass judgment on one another for matters of preference that we don't agree with or opinions that we don't agree with, and accept one another's as brothers and sisters in Christ because Christ unites us, we will begin to see a difference in the health of a church and even in our own hearts. So I pray that we see one another in such a way, praying for one another, encouraging one another, church, and loving one another. Doing so, church will find no means to judge or despise one another. But in all sense, love one another well with a genuine love that is without hypocrisy. But again, verse... Chapter 12, verse 10, we would seek to outdo one another in showing honor. That is, giving preference to one another. The strong to the weak, the weak to the strong, that we all would be conformed to the same image. For God's glory and for our good. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for, again, the instruction of your word. Lord, on, on matters that existed 2,000 years ago and 2,000 years prior to that. Lord, we are all different. You created us, Lord, with diversity. You value diversity, Lord, within your people. But above that, Lord, you value unity. Lord, you've called us to unity. You've called us to peace. And if we're despising and passing judgment on one another, Lord, we're not living peaceably with all as it depends on us. I pray, Lord, that you help us to see where we land here. Not for sake of arrogance or to puff ourselves up, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, Lord, but to think with sober judgment for for where we're at in our walk with you. I pray that the strong do know that they're strong in faith, Lord, and I pray that the weak know that they're weak in faith. But I pray that we all come to understand that we all are accepted by you, but we have all not arrived yet. that we would defer to one another, Lord. We would seek to honor you above all else by the way we love one another. Lord, I pray that it starts with me. I pray for every member of our body, everyone watching this morning, everyone that hears your word would evaluate their own heart and their view of other people, Lord, and that you would align us with the way you view each of us as accepted and welcomed by you, because we belong to you. Lord, I thank you for that, for that calling in my life, for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that I love dearly, that I am connected with in such a way within your body, Lord, that is not not easily removed. And I pray that preferences do not become the thing that would divide any of us, Lord. I pray that it would not be sin either. There would be confession, genuine repentance of sin, Lord. But I pray, Lord, that outside of that, Lord, that we would accept, love, and care, and encourage one another. For we are all yours. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and it's in your name that we pray.